This week's episode is brought to you by The Peak. I want to stay up to date on what's going on in the news, but I don't have time to read the paper every day, which is why I love The Peak. It's a free daily newsletter covering top stories for Canadians and only takes about five minutes to bring me up to speed every morning. I personally subscribe to The Peak and I read it every morning. It has a lot of great content, it's to the point, and it's written in a very entertaining tone. So if that sounds interesting to you, please go over to readthepeak.com and enter your email to subscribe. This podcast contains explicit content and is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Don't say we didn't warn you. Hello, everyone. My name is Madison. And I'm Hannah. And you're listening to Who's Knocking? A true crime podcast. Yeah. We're here. Yeah, so here we are. Um, Got my cider. Yeah, I got my nude. (laughs) What is that? It is a gin soda. Oh, that sounds really good. Everyone grab a drink. You might need it for this. Yeah, so it's good evening. It's the evening for us. Maybe it's the morning for you. But welcome. We're so happy to have you back. We have a, a fun, not fun, but a tale for you today. <laughs> need a word um, that's like in between fun and terrifying. Like it's like, what's the word for that? See, I feel like every word that makes it sound good is... I just like, you know, if I were like the family of the victim, I'd be like, fuck you. We need a word like bad, like something that's bad, but you think it's interesting. Yeah, it's hard because this content is so like horrifying, but like doing this podcast is so fun to me. It's just interesting. Like it's, yeah, I mean, it happens. So I don't want to like pretend that it didn't happen. I want to like dive into it and understand it yeah yeah no I agree it's 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 fascinating to me like whenever people because I think that a lot of people are into true crime it's pretty popular thing but like for example my husband he's like I don't like he's always like Addison's into like stories where people kill babies and stuff like she loves serial killers I'm like I don't love serial killers like they're the fucking worst but not star you don't love serial killers yeah but like the extremes of the human mind is friggin' fascinating. We're not going to do it, but we're going to be here and talk about it, basically. Yeah. So I'm sure you've read the title. I'm not going to tease you about it, but we're talking about Israel Keys today. Um, and Israel Keys is fascinating, horrifying, terrible person, scum of the earth. And when we decided to do this podcast, especially with the beginning episodes, I was like we should do lesser known cases so just you know because Israel Keys within the true crime community within if it is a community I don't know but within like the true crime podcast and YouTube world has been done to death but when I brought up the name yeah when I brought up the name Israel Keys to Hannah she didn't know and that's the reason that I wanted to do Israel Keys because I'm like okay well if I'm going to tell you about this guy I might as well do it in podcast format um a lot of people probably other people don't know too because I yeah, feel like that's pretty close to the true crime world exactly so it's it's interesting because I feel like in like the people who are like we like true crime blah 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 they're <laughs> like everybody knows about him but like 
he's not a household name. He's not like a Ted yeah. Bundy. He's not a Jane, John Wayne Gacy or Charles Manson or whatever. I had never, I I've only heard about him in the last couple of years. Um, but he's, he's, to me, he's up there in that, uh, like terrifying range of serial killers however the one thing about his story is it's it's a little bit less satisfying because there's a lot of loose ends that never got tied okay so i'll i'll like tell you that but i'll, I'll pretty much leave it there and and uh in terms of rating it mm-hmm. i don't i don't find this like particular i don't find him particularly like scary like there's not there is a bit but like there's not a whole lot of like gore or like things that like would scare me it's like this is a he's a purely like psychologically horrifying individual my favorite yeah which that's interesting to me yeah so it's like and with this whole rating system like i always go back to to your uh your one on the Antil kids because like it literally like kind of scared me so it's I'm like <laughs> you know so I'm gonna put I'm gonna put Israel Keys at like a seven. Oh, that's yeah that's up there it's up there um and I'll like I think I'll elaborate a little bit more at the end and like hear okay. what you have to say and hopefully what you find viewers have to say yes for this podcast, I, I looked at a number of sources and I have listened to many podcasts on Israel Keys before, but I, I didn't listen to any uh, recently because I didn't want to like, I don't know, copy any or whatever. Um, but I did read this book. I actually have not finished it, but I think I got the gist of it. Looks good. Looks it's, nice. it's called The Devil in the Darkness and it's by J.T. Hunter. I found it to be pretty good and and had a lot of information although there was some conflicting information that i found there that i heard otherwise elsewhere not anything crazy but like the number of kids in his family and stuff he claims it is always- everyone else is 10 so i don't know hmm. um but it was it was helpful and like just want to shout out jt hunter thank you shout out and also, last thing before I start is that I've heard a number of podcasts. So, like, I've heard people kind of cover, like, the chronology of this mm-hmm. a little bit differently. And I, I didn't want to, like, straight up, you know, copy anybody else. So feel free to give feedback, Hannah, you and whoever else on, like, how you like things to be told. Like, I know some people, con- like, always start off with the main person they're talking about and their childhood and then go like chronologically this I'm I'm a little bit jumping back and forwards with and whatever so any feedback appreciated yeah yeah please give us feedback like I'm always inclined to do the chronological order because I feel like you can kind of um, basically like give the background and the lead up and kind of like the escalation of how things happen but at the same time sometimes things don't really make sense in that order like you kind of have to jump around so Exactly. And sometimes it's, that's not the most interesting way to tell the story. Yeah, true. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. which, it's you like, know. To me, it's like the second season of True Detective. Like, if you're not going to put the murder right in the beginning, I'm not going to watch an hour of shit to get to the point where there's a murder at the end. Like, I couldn't even it, get through that. I couldn't get through the first episode. It was, like, and it was such a good murder. cast. It was such a good cast. And, like, yeah. they just failed. And the first season was so good. It was so good. Was- so good yeah i know it was amazing 
Okay, Israel Keys, tell me. So we're going to get into Israel Keys. So Israel Keys is known as the most methodical serial killer of all time. Okay. Unsure if I agree with that. It's probably a highly debatable thing, but he was methodical AF, we'll say. Israel Keyes was born in Richmond, Utah on January 7th, 1978 to Heidi and John Jeffrey Keyes. This, multiple sources claim that he was the second of 10 children born. And this source says he was the first boy of nine children. So not sure how much that matters, but he had a lot of siblings and he was up at the top. And he was born to a very religious family. He and his siblings were homeschooled by their parents. And when I say they were very religious, like they were like to the extreme end. Their parents were not only extremely religious, but also anti-government interference, anti-modern medicine, anti-public schools. Uh, they live, yeah, they lived in uh, an isolated home in the woods with no heat or electricity. Can I ask you, what's the religion? So I will get to that. Okay, okay. So people later described Heidi, the mother, as a harsh woman with a lot of extreme beliefs who switched religions a lot. So I think at his birth, they were um, some sort of like Christian, like close to Amish. But then very quickly, they got into Mormonism. Um, And then when Israel was about five years old, he and his family moved to an area just north of Coville, Washington. And at the time, they deconverted from Mormonism, and they started attending a church that at the time was known as the Ark, and it would later change its name to Our Place Fellowship. The Ark was a fundamentalist Christian church that Israel would later describe as militia-like and Amish, so kind of like what they were born into, but it was also heavily based on white supremacist ideology, and thus inevitably drew a lot of anti-Semites. It was very extremist and very racist. Yeah, sounds like it. Sounds so, like a great place to raise your children. <laughs> yeah, so like not super surprising what comes later. Yeah. And then abnormal. Exactly. Um, and it seems like the mother was like very like she was a super harsh woman. There's some yeah. like and like clearly they were like racist. And like later in life, he married or got with, I, I don't remember if they actually got married. I think they got married to a woman who was half black, half native. Uh-huh. Um, and like, she talks about how the mother, like never, like every time she talked on the phone with her, she was just like spitting Bible verses at her. Like, I think it's very possible that the mother, at least the mother had some sort of mental health issues just yeah. based on like the extremes of of everything and the erraticness of switching religions constantly. And yeah, like, I feel like that's kind of unusual, but the definitely like overly harsh moms is kind of a theme. I feel like, you know, yeah. it'll fuck you up. <laughs> yeah. It won't do, won't do good things for your psyche. Yeah. Then also, okay. So while they were living in Cobell and going to that racist church, the keys lived next to another family uh, called the Kehoe family. And Israel and his siblings grew up around them, and they were at least somewhat close with one of their sons named Chevy Kehoe. Um, and Chevy would grow up to be a violent white supremacist serial killer. Okay. Uh, Chevy and his brother Shane committed a bevy of horrific crimes 
crimes, including murder, robbery, kidnapping, exploding things, and torture. Chevy Chevy is now serving three life sentences in a maximum security prison. I believe that Chevy killed his whole family. Um, Whoa, we should talk about him. Yeah, well, I was like, okay, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole because, like, that's a whole other thing. But, like, yeah, he sounds pretty fucked as well. And it seems like he kind of brought his brother into it. And the, is, the Keys family grew up right next to them and spend time with them. Uh, yeah, so good, good start. Next episode. We'll talk about that other guy. Israel would later admit that during his childhood, he was excited by the idea of violence. He spent time torturing animals, like cats and dogs, for fun, yeah, and found the idea of inflicting... Yeah, well, he thought it was fun. He found the idea of inflicting pain on other people exciting, and he was was very interested in serial killers. Hmm. Guess who who his hero was? Um, You'll guess it. Ted Bundy? Yes. Oh, nice. (laughs) He, like... Nice for me guessing it, not that his hero is Ted Bundy. He considered Ted Bundy to be his hero. Yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah, and so, like, later he, when they, when we hear from him, he talked a lot about, especially, it's like, for him, it was when he turned about 14, was that he, when he realized that something was different about him. He, he told this one story about how he would go into the, like, he brought a bunch of kids into the woods one time. Okay. For people who don't like uh, anim- harm to animals, just fast forward this a little bit. He went into the woods with some other kids and like he just had guns, I guess. I don't know. You're on the boonies or whatever. Yeah. And he shot a cat in the stomach and then the cat just started like circling around the tree and vomiting. And like he was like, LOL, this is hilarious. And like he like looked around at the, the other kid who was with him and the kid's like vomiting and like completely traumatized by this obviously because it's horrific yeah. and he's like oh true and then the kid went and told his parents and then those parents talked to his parents and like he's like that's when kids stop going in the woods with me yeah <laughs> i wouldn't go either this is like lord Voldemort as a child yeah like he's literally the devil uh horrible that's fucked imagine picking a good time with your friends is that like at 14 too that's young right I mean, I think any age it's fucked up to be shooting cats, but yeah, that's pretty young. And I'm sure like there was more that led up to that and like horrible things he would do to animals. And it's like, but that's when he realized that other, that's, that's when he had his moment of realization that like, oh, I'm the weird one for enjoying this, you know? Well, you know, good that he realized, I guess. Yeah. And so I think that's, when he was like, oh, true, this is the side of myself that I have to hide, and I will portray a different person to other people. You know, I bet it was normal in his family then, because I feel like when you, like, I've had those moments as a kid, like, nothing, <laughs> nothing like killing cats or anything, but moments where you're like, oh, other families don't do that. Like, when you kind of grow up with stuff, you know what I mean? I feel like it's For that, sure. And I think... Fundamentalist values are very, like, uh, disciplinary. And I think that's part of it, but I, I think there was also another story about how he, like, killed his sister's cat, and it's, like, I don't think, like, it was that, like, I don't, none of the rest of his family killed anything or anyone, but they were, like, super harsh. Right. That is interesting. He had nine, eight or nine siblings, but he was the one who kind of, like, turned that route. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, like that we know of. I don't know. True. True. And I think a lot of them are still in a like very religious setting. And I think too, like if you're, you know, make it to that far um, in like an extremist religion, then probably like you're, I'm not going to say behaving yourself. Like if you're part of a white supremacist church, you're not behaving yourself, but you're adhering to like specific rules for yourself. Right. Right. And others. So I don't know if, who knows what's going on in somebody's mind clearly, but maybe outwardly you're following a set of rules that you've made for yourself. Yeah. Like I'm sure the laws in that church are not torturing animals. Like he kind of went outside of it to do that. It's just thinking you're superior based on your race. Yeah. And maybe that like other individuals. Yeah. I could see where that ideology would form. Cause if it's like, listen, white people are better than whatever other ethnicities and other religions, it can tie into being like, well, then I'm above animals. And like, I have the right to like do whatever I want because I'm superior kind of thing. Well, I think growing up in an ideology like that helps you to dehumanize other people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for sure. So that's how we grew up. Sounds like a charming childhood. Not the most ideal of environments by any means. Yeah, I wouldn't say so. So I will fast forward to 1996. Okay. This is where. And he was like uh, 18-ish at the time. Is that right? 78? Yes, that would make sense. I'm trusting your map there and but, not, it would take me too long to I don't know how I knew that. Like, that. I, I'm pretty sure I'm right. Yeah, I think if you subtract the six from the eight, you get a, I, no, I don't know. You get four, I'm yeah, just, yeah. I'm no, just trusting you. You you got it. I know it's that. So in 1996, a little girl named Julie Harris went missing from the town of Coville, very near to where uh, the kids were living. Julie was a double amputee and a Paralympic athlete. I think she was she was either missing her legs or her feet because um, everybody refers to her prosthetics as feet. So regardless, it was double and either like knee down or ankle down. I'm not sure. Okay. When she went missing, many people suspected Julie's mother's boyfriend at the time. And a month later, Julie's prosthetic legs or feet were found by the river and eventually her body was found. This was around the time that Israel became estranged from his family after declaring himself an atheist. So he pretty much denounced his family's lifestyle and religion. And his parents kicked him out. They told his siblings that they were not allowed to speak to him. And he moved away from the family. He acquired a plot of land in upstate New York. And a lot of people now speculate that Julie Harris was Israel's first victim, mostly based on the timeline. But there's no evidence to support this theory. And he never admitted to it. But I think as you'll see later, I would speculate on that too. Okay. That's interesting. So like, how fucked is that? That this is such a fucked up thing. Like, I don't even want to skip over it. Of His family, when he becomes an atheist, they tell all his siblings not to talk to him. Like they totally shun him. Like that, I know, I forget what it was. I don't want to like say the wrong uh, religion that does this, but I know there's another religion that does this. I think you might be thinking about the Westboro Baptist Church. I might be. I don't know. Or maybe like potentially some sects of Mormonism where um, 
if you leave, then you're like shunned forever. Well, it's like very typical cult behavior. And I think based on like, I think cult is a very difficult thing to define. Um, Like cult versus religion is like, is a very debatable thing. But I think, especially if we're talking about something that's literally based on white supremacist ideology, like we can call it a cult. I'm comfortable putting it under that umbrella. And it's at the very least like extremist in nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of thing of religions, like I would say Westboro Baptist Church was like a very extremist, if not a cult. And like, that's exactly what they did. Like there's a bunch of Westboro Baptist people who have come out of the church and now like do speaking events. And they're like, yeah, my parents, my mom doesn't talk to me because I went against this. And like, that was a very popular, um, technically religion, but I think most people would say it's pretty much a cult that did that. Yeah, I don't know of any of the like huge religions that do that, but exactly, I don't think most religions would. But even like with the word cult, it is interesting because I know in like ancient cultures, I remember reading about like ancient Egypt. There's like cults of certain things, but it's like kind of a good thing, like where they worship a certain god or they worship like a certain uh, like type of lifestyle, like you know farming or whatever, where there's like a religious aspect into it. So I feel like it's like can be a good thing in a way like it's not necessarily a bad thing to be a part of uh like wearing your out kind of group if that group maybe does something good or bring the individuals and or or, yeah or if they're not like you know sorry white supremacists can't support you but you know yeah it's it's i think the term cult has been like very stigmatized i think now like in our day and age exactly in our day and age when you say cult, you think of the Manson family. So I was interesting. I bought a book a couple years back about cults. It was like a study of cults. And they're like, so in this academic paper, like we are using the term new religious movements when we talk about cults. I remember that book. That's a good book. What's it called? Is it just called cult? Cults in context. Yeah, that is a really good book. Oh, I want to buy a copy of that. Shut up. I didn't finish it. You can borrow it. It's on my shelf, I think. Okay, cool. I want to. Okay, so that girl disappeared. Uh, Julie, is her name Julie? Julie Harris, yes. And yeah, so yeah. to this day, we don't know if that's what he did, but it would make sense as a starting point. Although it would not have been, yeah, it would have been pretty much a starting point. Shortly after purchasing this land in New York at about age 18, Israel moved to a very small town called Maupin, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And that was about two hours outside of Portland for reference and this is where his first admitted crime took place according to israel it was a very hot afternoon and he noticed a group of three teens tubing on a lake oh god he watched them like a lion stalking his prey my best line he waited until one of the girls was separated from the group and then he made his move the girl was approximately between the ages of 14 and 18 he grabbed her, he brought her to a secluded location, he sexually assaulted her, and then he let her go when he took off. What the fuck? So, like, I don't know if he's claiming that this is his first crime. I think that's what he is. and But it would have taken place after the Julie Harris thing, which makes sense that he would lie about, and I will tell you why in a little bit. But, um, yeah, so it, years later, this was told by him, and... There's no evidence to support it. The girl in question has never stepped forward. They've like authorities have have asked for this person to step forward. 
maybe she's dead. Maybe she never existed and the story is made up. We don't know. It's so hard to know. It's so hard to know with these people. It's like. You, you can't believe a word they say. Yeah. yeah. They're like, uh, like known liars. So shortly after this alleged incident, Israel went on to enlist in the American military. That's he was, dad. yeah, he, he was stationed in a number of places and he earned the rank of specialist and he was honorably discharged in 2001. He claims to have n committed no crimes while on duty, which makes sense. Cause I mean, as you'll see later, the way that he commits crimes, like there's no way you could do that while you're in the military. There's too many people around. There's too many people watching you and knowing what you're doing. Um, I, I believe it. I, I, it makes it makes sense that he joined the army because I I feel like a lot of people probably like oh if I'm in the army I'll get to like kill people and he's probably like sweet that is interesting you know what I was thinking because when you said that I was thinking it's like he was growing up in a really strict like here are all the rules how to live your life religion so then the army kind of like takes the place of that especially because he's been kicked out of his family it's like here are all the rules here's what to follow that's what I was thinking but. True. Yeah, maybe like, that's, that's like, maybe point. that is comforting for you. And maybe like being on his own, he was like, fuck, like I don't have anyone telling me what to do all the time. Kind of miss yeah. it. So Which yeah. It, the thing. We need we, structure. We could speculate for a long time, but at the end of the day, we don't know. But it's interesting to think about what led to those choices. Definitely. Yeah. So. Charged. Pardon me? He got discharged. Honorably. Yes, he, he got honorably discharged. Not the word I use. Surprisingly. <laughs> so after he left the military, he settled in another little town in Washington called Nia Bay. I believe it's pronounced Nia because it's spelled like Leah. But okay. some people pronounce Leah as Leah, so I don't know. Uh, and this was a small fishing community on the U.S.-Canada border. Uh, Nia Bay was mostly populated with Native Americans. Israel gained a reputation around town as a nice guy with a good sense of humor. He okay. <laughs> not how I'd describe it. But very classic. Yeah, uh, superficially charming. That's it tracks. Yeah, he's he like everybody said he was a nice guy, uh, funny, like no suspicion of I mean, he seems hilarious. Like he seems super fucking funny. <laughs> oh my god, just wait till you like he has the most horrific sounding laugh. I've ever heard. Oh. We'll get there. Um, yeah, so he, he began to work for the Maka tribe as a construction guy, landscaper, general handyman. So soon after he moved there, uh, Israel found himself a girlfriend, who I briefly discussed earlier, and they had a daughter. And, interesting, Whoa. and here's the reason that I think the Julie Harris thing, I mean, it's not really a reason, but it would make sense as to why he didn't, harm children after that but he claims that his daughter was the reason that he developed a rule for himself that he would never harm a child i mean that's something i guess i mean it it's like because for example when i first heard about the julie harris thing i was like oh, well that doesn't make sense he never killed any other kids like people who kill kids like it's but it's it makes it makes sense for like a a teenager to kill a child because to them like First of all, their brains are not fully developed. I mean, I guess if you're a serial killer, your brain is never fully developed anyway. But yeah, if, like, it's, it, it's, that's a, and I, I hesitate to say, but I'm going to just say it, but it's a good place to start because children are more vulnerable. vulnerable. Yeah. You know what I mean? But um, for the cats, then the kid, like, it's like, it's like a gradual kind of thing, maybe. 
especially like I'm assuming she was either in a wheelchair or partially in a wheelchair. She was a double. I don't maybe she wasn't because depending on how good prosthetics were at the time or whatever. But clearly this is a child and somebody who had some sort of disability or uh, prosthetic legs or whatever. Like he was viewing her as a very vulnerable, easy victim. Yeah. Especially if he was able to get her prosthetic feet or legs off of her, you know. Right, right. So that's like for him a, a safe thing to start at. But then also yes. like him having a daughter and being like, I'll never harm children is the reason why you don't continue to see child victims later. I mean, I could see it because I was asking you like, because uh, you had mentioned that um, Julie Harris's mom's boyfriend was initially a suspect in her murder or her disappearance, I guess. Um, but it sounds like he might have been cleared or at least he was never charged for it. So if it's unsolved and we know that this creepy ass torturing murderer, sorry, don't come for me ever is real please, please. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's still an all unsolved crime. There's nobody has been, uh, has been charged for that. We'll probably so. never, know, but I, I mean, yeah, it tracks. Like, I mean, if you if you're somebody who gets like satisfaction and happiness from torturing animals, it's specifically because they are weaker than you. Like yeah. that is what it is. They can't like a cat can't fight back. So obviously against like a grown human. So that's kind of like a tie in. Yeah. All right. I can't believe you got a girlfriend. Oh my god. Oh, he's he had many. He was uh he he's a charming nice guy yeah to other people yeah yeah like ted bundy like got around like imagine dating someone and they like murder people i could not fathom but like you have been oh well that's another story but no like i always assume the person i'm dating or married to is a serial killer secretly yeah just to be safe no i chris i don't think you're a serial killer i definitely don't but like i remember the first time i ever went out with chris like three times i was like well i don't want you to know where i live because like you might be a serial killer and he's like yeah that's just being cautious but i think i was like a little more adamant about that than the average person I think that's very, very normal. I same, but he seemed to not. He's like, what? I mean, you have to be sure. Like, you have to make sure they're not. I'm not just going to tell you. Of course, if you might murder me. Exactly. Anyway, uh, so then, sometime between July and October of 2001, uh, that's when Israel claimed that his killing spree began. Shit. Okay. So now I'm going to go into two stories uh, of like the two confirmed murders. And okay. then we'll go kind of go back and like this is where the timeline kind of jumps around. But so we're jumping to 2011 um, from 2001. Okay. On one June night in 2011, a Vermont couple, Bill and Lorraine Courier, were asleep in their bed and they oh, never saw him coming. Side note, they yeah. live in. They live in Burlington, Vermont, which later we find out is actually the birthplace of Ted Bundy. So this was like all very, I don't know, cathartic yeah, for him or whatever. Um, I, I like, hate that they were asleep in their beds. Like that's the worst. Just getting, yeah. Well, yeah. I'll tell you what happened. Can't wait to sleep tonight <laughs> in my bed. <laughs> which Jeffrey McDonald case, we'll just, I'll just drop that here which we will cover later, but that's, it's allegedly everyone was woken up from their sleep. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, I forget his name, but the Las Feliz 
murderer. The doctor. Mm. The murder the murder mansion. Yeah. Also that me and Hannah good. hung out there. Yeah. Pretty cool of us. Biggest for... flex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ask us about that story and we'll tell you. Yeah, it was scary. Can confirm. Yeah. It's a terrifying place. So yeah, so they were asleep. And they never saw him coming because they were asleep. <laughs> uh, and the next morning, neither Bill nor Lorraine showed up to work. Diane Smith, who was Bill's sister, noticed that Lorraine was absent because they worked together at the Fletcher Allen Healthcare Center in Burlington. So noticing that Lorraine wasn't there and not hearing from her, she called Bill's place of work to ask Bill what was up. And she found out that he had not shown up for work. So that was enough for her to be like, okay, calling. she called the police to see if they could do a welfare check. And so during that welfare check, the police noticed that the glass portion of the door that led from their garage to their kitchen had been broken. And it was broken in such a way that like there was just enough room for like somebody's hand to go in and unlock the door, which is clearly what happened. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Inside the house... Nothing really appeared to be out of place. There was no sign of struggle, but the couriers were not there. Bill's diabetes medication was sitting out in the kitchen. They had some exotic birds, and I don't know if nobody's ever had a bird before. When Generally, I don't know if it's with every type of bird, but my mother has had an exotic bird before. It was the worst. Uh, Why? Because it side-bombed at you? It, no, it would just never shut up, ever. Ever. Um, so, Me anyway... <laughs> Maybe you would have gotten along with Chico. Sounds, sounds like a cool bird. I don't know. <laughs> no, he was the... <laughs> so anyway, when you put a bird to bed at night, you put a cover over their cage. And so it was like yeah. the middle of the day and the covers were still on their birds, which was unusual. Mm -hmm. um, there was a revolver missing. I don't know how they knew that the revolver was missing, but it was. Mm -hmm. And the police also noticed that a phone line had been cut. Oh, fuck. So after doing extensive analysis of the home, the going theory was that they had been abducted during the night. And that was oh, true. Turns yeah. out. Um, the hope was that the couple were still alive, but most of them knew that that was unlikely. The investigators ended up finding the courier's car abandoned about five minutes from their home. And there was not much forensically besides a piece of glass that they found to be from that door. So they knew that the door had been broken before the car had been taken. Right. Um, yeah. And they also had an eyewitness statement that said that a lone white male was driving the courier's car, but they only had a very vague description to go on. So it wasn't super helpful, but it did, you know, uh, make sense with the abduction theory. Right. After about three months of searches and discussions with the FBI and public pleas from the couple's family, there was no sign of Bill and Lorraine. And there was little, if anything, to go on at all. On February 1st of 2012, in Anchorage, Alaska, which is where Israel lived, Samantha Koenig was working the evening shift at this little coffee stand. So it was like an outdoor, like, standalone. Um, like, for her, like, it was indoor because like, this is Alaska. It's February. Um, but, like, it's the kind of thing where you, like, just walk up and it's like a stand. Okay. So it's not like in a building, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. So she was working in a little coffee stand um, and it was located in the parking lot of the Alaska club. And there was an IHOP and a Home Depot nearby. 
It was about 7.30 p.m. and Samantha was unaware of the lone man in a white Chevy Silverado parked in the Home Depot parking lot. The front, his front license plate had been removed along with all the other identifying items of his car. So like he had like this uh, rack on the top of his car that he would usually have. And I don't know what else other little identifying things, but he took it, taking them all off. And there was snow covering most of the back plates. Samantha had only just started as a barista at the common grounds espresso stand one month ago, but so far she'd been excelling. She had a very loyal group of regulars who enjoyed briefly visiting with her. She was a beautiful 18-year-old. Samantha was outgoing and charming, and she was really liking getting to know her customers. That evening, Samantha had no idea that the lone man in the white pickup truck was there for a very nefarious and and a specific purpose. She was unaware that the man... Why else would he be there? Uh... Well, some people just drive and park and like go on about their day and like don't try to kill people um but yeah she she was unaware that this man had staked out the coffee stand before that he had walked by many times noting the busy hours the common times of foot traffic she didn't know that this man had chosen the stand for its somewhat isolated location its lone attendant and its late hours so it was one of the stands or coffee places in the area that was open later than everything else this I'm man job and anything like that. Well, yeah, and we'll see here. Um, I never go anywhere alone ever again. Fuck this. Yeah, well, it's like if you don't, or if you're not confident, then you can like take down some. And even like it's not even just like small women. Like small women like us, like what's it's more likely. Like it's the less you can defend yourself against. But like if someone's got a gun, like you're just screwed. That's true. Yeah. I have dogs, so I always just hope like. They're going to, right? I just cannot think of any serial killer who would be like driving around looking for a victim and be like, oh, the girl with three pitbulls. Like, let's pick her. Like, there's no way. Don't fuck with me. Exactly. The reason I have (laughs) pitbulls. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. So this man had a plan, although not a complete one. He knew that he at least intended to rob the stand. But if everything was just right, and he hoped it would be, abduction, rape, and murder were also on the table. Wow, sounds like a great night. Such a fun plan. Like fun Friday night plans. That's horrible, but yes. Yeah, that's fucked. He does sound methodical, Madison. He took the rack off his car. He took the front license plate off. Like, that is very premeditated. Oh, girl, just fucking wait for his meticulousness. This is a meticulous-ass man. He is so meticulous, so methodical. Oh, God. At about 7 p.m. that night, Samantha received a call from her father to check in. This is something he did during all of her shifts. Her and her father had a very close relationship. Her mother was not really in the picture anymore. It's just her and her father. And interesting too, I don't, it will be explained further, but her boyfriend, it was in the home. She lived with her father and her boyfriend. Um, Initially, her father was like, no, I don't want my boyfriend, your boyfriend to live with you. But like she, she, everyone's like, she had her father wrapped around her finger. Like her and her father had a very close relationship and she generally was able to like, swing what she wanted and and it was it was all good and eventually when the boyfriend started living with them the the dad became very close with him and it was like it was a good little household little bit unorthodox but they they were great you know that's so fucking tragic too oh oh it's horrifying um 
so initially, and this is, it's so sad to hear this, especially like from a parental point of view, but initially James, the father, he didn't want his daughter to take the job at the coffee stand. He was super protective of her and he did not think it was safe for her to be working alone at a coffee stand in the dark, which, God. you know, this is Alaska in February. So it's freezing and it's dark. Yeah. But Samantha had been so excited about the job that she wore him down and she took it and, and was thriving basically. So this was at about 7.55 that evening. Samantha was cl cleaning up and starting to shut down and a man appeared in the window and asked for an Americano. Samantha began making the order and just as she turned around to give it to him, he pulled a gun on her. And mind you, just for anyone who's interested, all the security footage is on YouTube. You can see this whole thing that I'm about to tell you go down. He pulled a gun on her and he told her that this is a robbery and he ordered her to turn off the lights. Oh. She complied <laughs> and so sad. She, she was, I can only assume she was so nervous and scared that she didn't even press the panic button that was located just inches from the light switch. Oh, fuck. There was a panic button. Yeah. It seems like the people who owned the stand were like, they were like this is a, a dangerous thing like we care about the employees a lot of them are women like they 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 thought that something like this could happen and put a panic button in for the specific reason and there was nothing what? sorry what does the panic button do like it calls the police i believe it calls the police yeah or okay. alerts alerts but... the emergency services right a lot of places have this like banks and stuff it's yeah, a common thing to have. It's I don't I don't know how common it is in like little like indie, like uh, owner operated stands like this. But there was a panic button and she didn't press it. And like you can see, like she definitely probably could have had the opportunity to slightly do it. But like I'm sure many people in that scenario are just so nervous. Yeah, yeah and especially in shock. Yeah, and if you think you're being robbed, a lot of the times it's probably even like instead of like maybe pressing it and like thinking that they might see you do that, you're like, okay, I'll just give them the money and like do what they want and they'll go away. Yeah. You know? uh, Unfortunately, yeah. this is not one of those situations. Okay. So she complied completely. She tried to, she warned the man and said that her father was on her way to pick her up and that there was a security camera capturing everything, but he remained undeterred. He slipped through the window into the stand and the man ordered Samantha to get onto her knees and face away from him. And mind you, as I said, the light was off. Uh, when, when she did, he zip tied her hands. He shoved a bunch of napkins into her mouth to gag her and he led her out of the stand to his van. Oh, fuck. Um, so there was many aspects of the scenario that would normally have led this man to stop at robbery. For example, he usually used his victim's cars to abduct them. And when he learned Samantha's car, like didn't have a car there, it, it's very interesting that he kept going with his plan because he had never done this before. So he, he took her to his own car. The surveillance cameras were another thing. He saw that there were surveillance cameras there and he continued. Um, and all, he also, it's, it was very uncharacteristic of him to hunt for victims in, his, in the town that he lived. Yeah. So these are all things which you will find out later are very unusual for him. And like, there's a lot of speculation about this last um, murder that took place that we'll get into that later. But it's very interesting. Just, you know, hold that in your mind for now. Um, 
Samantha complied so completely to his demands. And I think this might be why he kept going, but she, she just did what he said so completely. And it, he said that it energized him and he felt invincible. And like uh, maybe one of the reasons that he continued. Um, he, so he led Samantha back to his car. He, on the way, he told her to act like his slightly intoxicated girlfriend so that he could hold on to her and it wouldn't look suspicious. Cause mind you, her hands are tied up. I think at this point she still has napkins shoved in her mouth. So he was able to like hide all that while she just looked like she was drunk. And because there were people around, even in the surveillance uh, footage, it, like he was so slick. There was a guy like right behind who could have witnessed this whole thing, but like it just did not look suspicious to him at all. He didn't even look over. Imagine being Samantha where it's like, there's someone there that could help you, but you're like too scared to ask for help. And oh my God, that's well, ex fucked. Exactly. And so even there was one point that he said that she tried to make a run for it as they were walking. And, and she I, should. Fuck this and guy. I, I believe that she saw other people around and thought like, I have to be able to get out of here. But at that point he caught up to her. He pushed her to the ground. He shoved his gun right in her ribs and was like, look, this gun is loaded. It's very quiet. One shot and I'll kill you. Yes. And after that, after that, she she was like, okay, right. and she just completely complied, and he was super calm about it. So like, that's the creepy thing is like the way th and that mind you, this is all his telling. So like, please keep in mind as I tell this whole story, there's some things that we can infer from the evidence, but besides that, all the details and stuff are his words. So when I tell you a detail that something like that that you know had to come from him. I can't say that that is true. I'm saying this. This is what he told us. Right, right. It's, yeah, that sucks that he's, like, the one that gets to narrate what happened. You know what I mean? Because it's, like, this fucking guy. And he freaking loved it, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, he sounds fun. He sounds great. Yeah. So, when he got her back to his truck, he asked her where her phone was and if she had a debit card. Her phone had been left in the coffee stand... And her debit card, she told him, was in her boyfriend's truck, which was parked outside of her house. So this man told Samantha that he was going to ask for a ransom from her family. And Samantha warned him that they didn't have any money. But she was she also seemed kind of relieved and were assuming it's because she knew that her dad would do anything to get her back. Like she had a family that super cared about her. So like if this was just about ransom, like they could figure it out, uh, whatever. So she seemed a bit relieved by this. Mm -hmm. um and so it seemed like there was some sort of hope that this guy just wanted money so they drove around for a little bit with samantha in the front seat while the man listened to a police scanner that he had in his car yeah, of course everyone just has these police scanners like why is it so easy to get a police scanner like you would think you know? It is. There's apps that you can get. I think like there must be oh, some fuck. sort of like, I think that there must be, and I don't know this, I'm just guessing, but I think that there must be some sort of like, you know, cause like you can film a police officer, like police officers, everything they do should be like the public should be able to see. That's how you keep them in check. So it yeah. might even be the case that like you're allowed. I don't know that, but like I've, Maybe. I've downloaded an app before where I could hear a police scanner. Yeah. I've heard of those, you know, it seems like I mean, seems okay. like you shouldn't, but yeah, also, yeah. like for like this exact reason, like 
we don't want criminals exactly. like knowing exactly. the movement. And it seems, I'll tell you a little bit of backstory into his police scanner. So there was, he claims that there was a couple instances where he was like stalking out people and, and that he would do it in like, like, like areas where people were camping or like out in the woods or whatever. And he's like I've ready to done. like shoot somebody or like it, it, there was one specific instance where like he saw a woman with a dog, but then like for whatever reason, like a police officer came. And even at that point he was like, yeah, I, I could take out a police officer. I'd actually be happy to. But then all this backup started showing up and he's like, okay, well that I wouldn't have got away with. So like, well, I should get a police scanner. So like, cause if I had a police scanner, I would know that they were going to be showing up just something like this. And that's why he got a police scanner. Literally for this reason alone, like people should not be allowed to get them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really don't know anything about that. Would love information from anybody. Maybe you are a police officer. Maybe you know about the law regarding police scanners. Maybe a very state to state. We're in Canada. Hit us up. Yeah, let us know. So, so we got into the car. The phone was up at the police stand. She told her where the debit card was, but it was in the boyfriend's car in front of her home. Um, They drove around for a bit. She was in the front seat. They listened to the police scanner. He decided that Samantha wasn't secure enough in the front. So he pulled into a parking lot. He moved her into the back seat. He saw that she was cold and was like, oh, are you cold? And she's like, yeah. And so he made like, he claims he made a little bed for her out of coats. And he zip tied her hands together and to the seatbelt. Um, but he needed to get the phone for the ransom text. So he thought about getting a prepaid one at the Walmart that they were parked in front of. But he thought that would be too risky to leave her alone. So ultimately, he made the decision to drive back to the coffee stand and get her phone. By now, it was about 8.30. And Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne Tortellani, was getting worried about Samantha because she wasn't replying to his text. So he stopped by the coffee stand. He looked inside. He was weirded out that she wasn't there. And he called Samantha's father uh, to tell him. And the father was like, I'm sure it's probably fine. And then the uh, the boyfriend, Dwayne, went back to his job because he was working in a restaurant. So the scenario there was that usually, like, I think him and Samantha kind of shared the truck. And that night, uh, she let him take it. And he, she was like, don't worry, I'll get my cousin to pick me up. And Dwayne was like, okay, this cousin's super unreliable. I don't think he's going to pick her up. So when he was at work, he, he was working in the kitchen. So he's working later hours. And so during his shift, he asked his boss if he could just run out and go pick her up and bring her home because he, he just assumed that the cousin was not going to do that. And so when he got there, she was gone. And she was not there. And he was super weird about out by it. And he kept trying to like tell the dad and be like, something something's not right here. And the dad was like, I'm sure it's probably fine. Just wait. Oh. The worst. So, sad. so it was about 11 p.m. when the man and Samantha came back to the coffee stand to get her phone. Uh, he walked right in. The door was still unlocked and he grabbed her phone and keys. And he also tidied up a little bit so that it wouldn't look suspicious. When he got back to his truck, Samantha was still lying in the back. He took her phone and he sent a message to her boyfriend telling him that she was mad and that she needed some time alone and that she, you, he was going to hear from her until she came back. Um, which was a text message that made him super suspicious as well. Yeah, <laughs> very suspicious. Then the man took the battery out of the phone so that it couldn't be traced. And the man drove himself and Samantha back to his own home. So he pulls up into his driveway and he leaves Samantha in the truck 
uh, well, he puts the license plate back on, he puts the rack back on the roof and like makes his car look like it normally does. And it was very late, but there were still people out walking dogs and stuff. His girlfriend who lived in the home was definitely still up. It was a I very his girlfriend. So this is not this is not the wife and the ex-wife and mother to his child. This is a new girlfriend. Wow. Um yeah, date him. Yeah. It was a very risky move, but he blindfolded Samantha and very quickly got her into his shed. I believe his shed was like kind of like adjacent to his house, not in a backyard, but like kind of right there. I don't know why my nose is so itchy, but sorry if it looks like I'm picking. Um, so inside the shed, he had everything prepared. He oh, had God. two heaters going. He had a tarp covering the whole floor. He had a rope tied in a noose-like fashion and screwed into the wall. He retied her hands in front of her so that she was able to go to the bathroom in a bucket that he so generously provided for her. So generous. Uh, yeah. And then he left her with a warning. He said he would be listening to his police scanner. And if he heard anything regarding her or his address, he would be able to get back quicker than the cops could get there. And he would not be happy. Uh, and I believe him, too. Mm hmm. Lastly, he got Samantha's home address from her. He ran into the house and he map quested the address. Cute. Got a map quest. <laughs> then he came back and Samantha had and he had Samantha point out exactly where the truck would be. He turned up the volume on a radio inside the shed so that she could not be heard over top of it. And he left in his girlfriend's car. I don't what the fuck is wrong with him? What's his girlfriend <laughs> doing? What like is she just like in the house it's like 11 30 like if it okay. were me i'd be like having a glass of wine and watching some netflix i don't know and like i'm sure that he like ran into her while he was in there map questing yeah um, <laughs> hey what are you map questing he's like he was like a construction guy i don't know what he was telling her that he was doing at the time but also i think as i might mention later like they were not in a great place in their relationship so wow, who shocking. knows shocking that this guy did not have healthy relationships yeah i know i can't believe it what a twist he seems like such a cool guy yeah <laughs> dressed fully in black he drove to samantha's home address and saw the pickup truck parked exactly where he was expecting it to be he parked a block or two away he walked up to the truck he unlocked it with samantha's keys and he grabbed her wallet Ugh. just as he was finishing up somebody came out of her house and asked him what he was doing he froze. Just then the man ran back inside and he took off. He, he hid behind a snowbank for a little bit and then he got in his car and left. And the man who came out turned out to be Samantha's boyfriend and later he retold what had happened. He came out. He saw a guy dressed all in black at his truck and was like, what the fuck are you doing? And so he ran back inside to go get Samantha's father who he lived with. And by the time he came back out, the man was gone. Shit. So close to catching him. And like, can you imagine thinking back on this all later? Like the just the shit that the father and the boyfriend had to go through. Oh, it's just horrible. Yeah. So the man came home. He went upstairs to check on his by now sleeping girlfriend. He poured himself a glass of wine and then he made his way out to a shed. Poured it, the glass of wine. Gotta savor the moment. Like ew. 
Um, it was now 2.30 a.m. and Samantha was still exactly where he left her. Samantha, poor girl, hopefully asked him if he'd figured out the ransom. And the man said, quote, yeah, it's all fine, unquote. End quote, sorry. He was loving this. He was loving how much she was complying to everything. He loved that she had that little bit of hope. And he was so excited to just crush her hope. He flipped her onto her stomach and added additional constraints. And Samantha said, quote, according to him, please don't rape me, end quote. Oh, no. Without saying a word, he did just that. He cut off all her clothing with scissors and he raped her both vaginally and anally. He's trash. And when he finished, he stabbed her in the back of the neck and strangled her to death. Ugh. When she'd been still for a few moments, he hung her up by the neck off of a shelf so that pressure remained on her neck, I guess, like to make sure she was definitely dead. And then later he wrapped her up in a sleeping bag and he put her in a cabinet. Then he finished his glass of wine and he went back into his house to shower. The next day he left on a cruise knowing that the temperatures would be low enough in the shed to keep her from decomposing. Shit. He got on a plane, went to Texas. Oh no, to, to, he went to New Orleans and then took a cruise out wherever the fuck Sounds like for two weeks. Like with a poor dead girl in a shed. Wow. That's fucked. The audacity. Yeah. Like, to do that. To a cruise now. He's you don't like, cruise. He's like, I need to just get this urge to murder out of the way so that I can have a nice vacation. Can't wait to finish my glass of wine and go on my cruise. He, like, the way he tells it, he had a glass of wine, he drank half of it, then he raped and murdered her, and then he finished it. He, like, wants to be Dexter. Like, the way he set it up. Well, absolutely. His whole shed was, and I'll, I'll, you'll even see a bit more later. So, the next morning, Michelle Robbins, who is the owner of the Common Grounds Espresso Stand, arrived, and she found it in a little bit of a mess. As we know, that he went back in and tidied things up, but, like, he doesn't know what it's supposed to look like, so clearly he didn't clean it to the standards of, that it was at, or whatever. Right. Um, at first, she thought nothing of it. Samantha had only been working for a month, so she was like, a lot of people who start working, like, they do really well, and then they start to slack. Like, it's not crazy that, like, she didn't clean up perfectly. Okay. But then she found Samantha's things in the employee cubbies or, like, whatever the place where employees put their stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Samantha's father called. I just want to make sure that my... Yeah, and so so then Samantha's father called, and... Then Michelle checked the security footage. And when oh. she did that, she saw and she they called the police immediately. God. The security footage, as I said, could be found online. And it shows exactly what happens. But the man's face was never seen. So at this point, the police dedicated a, a really large task force to Samantha's abduction. I mean, in context, you know, compared to whatever they had. This is a, a smaller town in Alaska. I'm assuming they did not have the biggest police force out there. I don't know if Anchorage is such a small town, but I'm assuming that it is. I think please feel spread- free to call, to correct me. Yeah, shout out Alaska's awesome. I know I really want to visit Alaska actually. 
bears. bears. Samantha, yeah. <laughs> Samantha's uh, boyfriend and father were beside themselves with worry, obviously. They were both questioned heavily and eventually ruled out as suspects. And Samantha's father, James, uh, announced a $12,500 reward at the time. During this time, the man was finishing up his cruise. He then flew to Texas, rented a car, set two houses on fire as a distraction for the police, then robbed a bank. And after what that, fuck? so he was really big into robbing banks. He would go to little small towns and like, and like meticulously or methodically rob a bank, like at gunpoint. And then what he would do is he would take off calmly and go to pull into a gas station and watch all the cops go to the scene and then just saunter on out. That's fuck. But see, like that is very movie like to me. Like I'm think I'm picturing like the beginning of the Dark Knight with like all the different masked guys going into the bank. Like that's like, I mean, it's it's not murder. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of epic. I wouldn't rob a bank, but okay, I get that. So. He's in Texas, set a couple houses on fire. To Robbed a bank. Okay. And then he returned the rental car and he flew home. As when he got home, yeah. When he got home, he retired to a shed to find Samantha frozen solid just as planned. Remember, we're in Alaska in February, so it's cold. Right. Yeah, yeah. There was blood from her stab wounds that had seeped into the floor. So he tore up those pieces of floor and he threw them in his fireplace with the rest of her items items that he didn't want to keep there was a couple that he kept once he had finished mopping up the floor with bleach he got out a table and he put samantha's semi-thawed body on top so that he could rape her corpse gross so fucking gross ew on february 24th 2012 so this is now 23 24 days after she's mm -hmm. gone samantha's boyfriend Dwayne received a text message from samantha's phone number it read quote with absolutely no uh punctuation okay it read quote connor park sign under albert ain't she purdy end quote that was the text he received from her phone. He immediately showed it to James and the two of them rushed over to, so Connor Park was a dog park. They rushed to the dog park and on oh. the board, there was a board for like people advertising, whatever. And there was a poster for a missing dog named Albert. And behind that was the ransom note asking for $30,000. And attached to the ransom note was a Polaroid photo of Samantha with a newspaper held up in front of her from February 13th. Oh, it's so creepy. The note asked, uh, that the $30,000 be deposited into Samantha's visa debit account, which is the card that he had in his possession. Ugh. It stated that he would be making small withdrawals in different states and also noted that Samantha was in another state and she'd almost gotten away twice. Samantha's father, James, was relieved to see a photo of his daughter alive, but he noted that her skin was paler than usual and that her hair seemed to be very wet or greasy. But he didn't think too much of it because he was happy to see her alive. It's a creepy uh, photo. The photo's scary. Oh, just you wait. Uh, I'm creeped I'm, up already. Uh, are we going to the photo? It's really creepy. I don't know. We'll have to discuss that. The, it's very available you online. You just, yeah, you just type in Samantha Koenig ransom You're photo. Unfortunately for James, Samantha was not alive, as we know. The mm -hmm. Polaroid's photo was taken after Samantha's captor took a trip to Walmart for makeup. 
He spent hours trying to get her makeup just right, and then he sewed her eyelids open, held up a current newspaper in front of her, and took a photo. Yeah, you can tell she's dead in the picture. She is absolutely dead in that photo. It's so creepy. And look at the difference of the photo of, like, the first photo I sent you and that one. Like, she looks like a different person. Mind you, it's a Polaroid photo, so, like, it's a shitty photo, and, like... To me, I'd be like, something is wrong. Like, like, look around her mouth. Like, and he claims that he spent like three hours trying to get her makeup right. And like, mind you, he's a guy who doesn't know how to use makeup, I'm assuming. Yeah. But he like, tr- like, it took him a lot. She had been dead for over two weeks. When Ew, he took that photo. So creepy. Oh, you know, that and she'd been, that? she'd There's been, like the- yeah, yeah, the old exactly but those yeah. people like you know they're dead and like that's the it's point still this... fucked, but yeah, yeah yeah this is worse so she had been raped murdered frozen thawed raped again put makeup on sewed her eyelids open and then took a photo jesus fucking christ horrible just disgusting yeah that is like a level beyond so after he took the photo, he carefully set up his shed in a Dexter-like fashion, Dexter-like fashion, and he dismembered her body. So he basically put plastic all over the place, and he yeah. dismembered her. Uh, and then he very meticulously he like got rid. So he typed the ransom note on a typewriter. He got rid of the typewriter. He obviously wore gloves and everything for the no. He like he took the table that he used he burned that he like got rid of everything he, why did he like was he just doing this to like torture the dad and husband or the dad and boyfriend he got the money they they uh, gave they gave him the ransom money and it was not super i think that he so later we'll get into theories about like i don't know why my nose is so itchy about why this went the way that it did especially compared to his alleged previous murders but i think he knew and you'll see he very nearly got away with taking all the money um and like he he robbed people constantly and allegedly killed people so it's not a crazy plan but he did make a lot of mistakes which led to his captor yeah like the the ransom thing is is risky because it's like obviously like you know they could get the police to watch the drop-off location or they could like there's a lot of like things or like they could put a tracker in it or something or like uh, fake bills or whatever so there's a lot of yeah that's fucked all those questions will be answered all right so the I'm man still, like reeling from the photo it's that's that the so photo is the most fucked up thing i yeah he, that got, was he got a sewing kit and sewed her eyelids open oh i hate that okay moving on so the man flew flew uh from anchorage to las vegas he rented a white ford focus and he drove to dallas texas on march 7th he drove to arizona he stopped in a small town called the wilcox and pulled up near an atm he was wearing several layers of clothing to make him look like he had a bigger build or was overweight or whatever um, and he was wearing a scream mask. Just a casual scream mask. He, and they know this because there's security footage. He pulled $400 out of Samantha's account. And about 90 minutes later, he pulled out $400 in an ATM in Mexico. The FBI was 
obviously monitoring the debit card. But at the time, they would get notifications about the withdrawals, but like by the time they would get the notification, he'd be gone, obviously. But what they did get was his vehicle because at one of the ATMs, he parked within range of the cameras, which I'm sure he didn't know that he did, but they were able to see his vehicle. Seems On, so risky. So risky. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you've been doing this for years and years and years, like you start to take more risk and think that you're invincible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. On March 9th, 2012, uh, the man pulled $480 out of an ATM at the Houston Community Bank in Humble City, Texas, which is a cute name for a town. Cute. That's cute. While he was in town, he stopped at an Avis car rental place to get a new car. So for the purpose of like changing his vehicle. And here's where things started to go really wrong for him because the only car they had available was the exact same make and model of the car that he was already driving. So random. Okay. LOL is what I wrote. <laughs> that is like, what are the chances? They're like, oh, all we have is what you already have. And he's like, okay. And took it. Two days later, he drove to Grand Prairie, Texas to attend his sister's wedding. So I think, first of all, to attend his sister's wedding. That is so fucked up. But I see, I think if it had been like earlier in his like killing career i guess you could call it that he would have been like okay and then like switched another car soon but i think because he's like you know what i'm getting away with this like okay this is a small little foil in my plan but like i'll keep going which is exactly what his mindset seemed to be when he did this whole thing to samantha he i think he was like you know what i'm here i'm gonna go on a cruise like i'll just find somebody near here fuck it and then there was like security footage and she didn't have a car but like he just kept going and some people speculate that he wanted to get caught. I and I don't know. I don't know how much I necessarily believe that. I think it's a very good theory. We'll, we'll get into more of that later. Um, but it's very interesting. Who knows? Because it's so different than all of the other crimes, which we'll get into a little bit more later. That is a thing. Like people wanting to get caught or subconsciously. Yeah. And I, I think that there's quite a bit of reasons to speculate that which we will get into later. Sorry, I keep saying that, but we will. We'll get there. So he drove to Grand Prairie, Texas to attend his sister's wedding. And his sister was still deeply religious. And I don't know if she was at the same church or if it was maybe something like less racist or whatever, but it was pretty extreme. Um, And Israel was still pretty atheist so he actually got in a verbal altercation with both his sister and the priest at the wedding and it was super weird for everyone involved that's so awkward not the time yeah like he just got in like a verbal fight with the priest and like said something super here let me pull up i wrote down the page yeah i want to know i can i can tell you one of so one of the guests at the wedding said to him quote when did you first decide you were going to hate god end quote and he said Fighting words. Yeah. He said, I don't believe in God um, before stepping out to the porch to smoke a cigarette. His sister-in-law followed him outside. And this is all quoting from the book. I'm going to say, I'm going to start here. Quote, you know, she said, touching him gently on the shoulders, God will forgive you for however you have sinned. Uh, I don't know. (laughs) and, And then he said, quote, you don't know what I've been through. I have to drink every day to forget what I've done. You don't know the depths of darkness that I've been to. You don't know what I've done. End quote. 
So like that was the whole thing that happened with his sister. And then I'll just I'll just read these couple paragraphs. Uh, so quote. Jacob Gardner, the the charismatic leader of the Church of Wells, that's what they were in right now. So it's not the Ark and it's it's not the original church, but I don't I don't I don't know about it. But it's where people confront each other at weddings. Uh, the charismatic leader of the Church of Wells presented the sermon during the wedding ceremony. As Gardner delved deeper into his sermon, it shifted to an attack on Samantha's killer's atheism. So referring to Israel, the man glared at Gardner and uh, stood up to wave stood up as a wave of anger swept over him. Your gospel has no grounding in truth, he bellowed indignantly. Silence enveloped the gathering as he stepped toward Gardner, fixing him with an ominous stare while his mouth broke into an icy smile. Not everyone shares your beliefs, he muttered bitterly as Gardner nervously backed away. The man's resentment of his sister's church was merely the latest manifestation of his rejection of the Christian beliefs his parents uh, a spiritual and psychological struggle he was determined to end according to his own terms so like end quote in front of everybody he like dukes it out a little bit with the priest and like scares them enough for the priest to start like backing away from him yeah I mean he sounds scary I'd be scared like why did you go to the wedding sounds like you didn't want to be there honestly though the priest was kind of antagonizing him yeah and, and I think he like, he'd been kicked out of his family. He's an atheist. I, I really don't know why he was invited to the wedding or was like, yeah, I'll go. But clearly it's a scenario where, like, everyone there is like, oh, like, he's an atheist. And, like, we're super, super religious and racist. And, you know, it's just like that's a recipe for disaster. My yeah. Like, in the meantime, you're in the middle of, like, robbing this dead girl's family. And, like, wow. his, like just what the hell, man? what yeah. the fuck there's so many things about this that are just like uh, i just i don't know why you're in the middle of like systematically going around and and taking money from a girl's account that you raped and murdered and you're like i'll oh, just stop at my sister's wedding who i also don't like and i don't get along with anyone there he is that guy who like does the fucked up thing and then acts really normal afterwards though Oh my god, yeah. There's a lot of interrogation video on YouTube. I'll just we'll get into that, but Lee. Oh, he sounds creepy. Okay. On March 13th, the man was chilling in a quality in motel and he noticed some police cars out front. They looked around a bit and then they left. The police had been looking for a white 2012 Ford Focus. The Texas Highway Patrolman Brian Henry inquired in the motel as to who owned the car, that his, so his car was in the parking lot. The room associated with the car was booked under the name Elijah Keys. Later in the morning, they were staking out and watching. And they saw the man associated with the car walk out of the motel to the car, pack it up, and leave. Henry followed the man onto the highway and saw him drive three miles per hour over the speed limit and used that excuse to pull him over. Shit. Officer Henry Pulls read his, his ass over. Officer Henry read his license with the name Israel Keys and saw that it was an Alaska license. And he clocked also how much this man was sweating. And he was like, okay, this is the guy. And so he arrested him on the spot. After searching the vehicle, they found a gun, Samantha's debit card and phone, and the screen oh, mask. Oh, shit. 
Thank God, honestly. So this was good news for Samantha's friends and family when the suspect had been apprehended, but nobody had a very good feeling when Samantha was not with him. Yeah. When they searched his home, they found a photograph of Bill and Lorraine Courier and a newspaper article about their disappearance that had been saved onto his computer. Oh my God. So that's where we're going to leave it for now. And I will continue this and we will do part two next. I'm creeped out. I'm disgusted. Honestly, that photo, I don't know how often I've seen photos of murdered people, but that photo is like burned into my eyelids. That's enough. Yeah. And please, like, if you don't think you can handle looking at that, that photo, don't go look for it. You don't yeah, need to. It's bad. it's bad. Like, I'm pretty, I would. I would like to think that, like, I'm pretty desensitized and things don't creep me out that easily. But, like, yeah, that's... I understand that that's a horrifying photo. And there have been many photos that, like, have really fucked with me. But if I'm going to be super honest, I had no problem looking at the photo. And I don't know what that says about me, but that's just the truth. Yeah, I think for me, I think it was partially because I didn't know what I was about to see. So I was like, oh, a photo of her. And then I was like, that does not look like how a person should look like. Holy fucking shit. Like, it was a lot. Yeah. Like, you can tell. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. That's creepy. He's fucked, man. Yeah. We, we can rate, wait till the rating it till the till part two. Okay. Because, um, like, there's there's a lot. There's quite a bit more to it. Um, but the, the next episode, we will talk about um, – what happens after he gets arrested and like that's that's where everything really comes out so that's like the really in my opinion interesting part about it and yeah yeah. i'm interested to hear what happens honestly like i'm just really happy he was caught yeah i think pretty much everyone is like yeah i I don't know who's like or like you're really fucked up if you're like oh poor guy what's the deal with his girlfriends like i don't know if you're gonna tell me in the later part but like or was he just cool with them and they just didn't know? They had no clue. Not a clue. The the So there's the uh, ex-wife and the current girlfriend. And, like, there were girlfriends in between, but I don't know much about them. He was also, like, he frequented sex workers a lot. Did a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but the ex-wife, like, she's, like, looking back. Like, there was little signs here and there. But, like, nothing that would have alerted her to being, like, oh, he's a serial killer. What, um, do you know what signs might have been? So, so he, there was certain things he said about like his past and like, um, I'll see if I can find specific stuff for the second episode. I can go through the book. Um, but he was, and also like, this is not, um, crazy, but like he, he was quite an alcoholic. Yeah. Um, but she claims that he was a fantastic dad. That's fucked. And like, she had her own issues, which I, this is all stuff that I will go into. Um, but yeah, everybody even like. He was, a, he was a good dad. That's insane. Like, how can a person have the capacity to be a good father, but also be, like, a psychotic, premeditated murderer? Honestly, I almost think it's it's easier to, like, completely disassociate and be oh, two yeah, completely definitely. distinct, different people okay. than it is to, like, go some, like, halfway, you know? Yeah, yeah. I hear that, like living in denial. Like I'm sure, because there's probably a part of them that part of him that has some degree of morality and that want like desires to be normal. So he probably like can be in denial that way. Well, I think the thing for him that might have been a factor in like how he kept being so normal seeming is his daughter. 
true. He tr- like he seemed to truly care for her, and you will see in the next episode because like she's discussed quite a bit. He truly cared for her. He he truly wants what's best for her. He truly loved her. He would brag about her to his friends at work. I don't friends. I don't know. Um, <laughs> co-workers, whatever. He was going to parent teacher interviews. Like he was, he was a, like from all accounts by his ex wife, who has no reason to to like say good things about him at this I point. Mean. She was like he was up for feedings. He was, uh, you know, like. Like, he was a good dad. This is insane. Like, this is crazy. This is more than I was expecting. Well, I definitely can't wait to hear more. Yeah. So, please, uh, we, you know, if you're interested in hearing this from me and you've never heard of Israel Kids before, like, don't look into it. Wait till the next one. Please send us an email at hello at whosknockingpodcast.com. Check us out on Instagram at whosknockingpodcast. We have a Twitter at Who's Knocking Podcast. Um, let us know what you think. Let us let me know what you think about the the like way that I've told this so far. Maybe hold off on listening to the second, like listen to the second one, maybe before you develop that opinion. Do you know Israel Keys? Do not. What do you think? We'd love to hear any. Thoughts. I can't believe I haven't heard about this guy. I know he's crazy. I it's it's absurd to me that he's not up there with like Ted Bundy and. And Jeffrey yeah. Dahmer and whatever. But I think a huge part of it, and you'll you'll see in the next episode, is there's a lot of loose ends. A lot. Damn. So well, it's I'm hard. satisfactorily terrified and creeped out. I'm glad I have dogs. <laughs> if if anything, if anyone tries to come to my house in the middle of the night, I have dogs, they will fuck you up. Yeah, I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and they will seriously fuck you up. So don't even try. <laughs> somehow that doesn't seem as terrible well if you don't like if you don't like harming children don't come to my house which we hope (laughs) maybe that's a really fucked up thing for me to say but whatever i said it anyway good evening y'all and you know watch out because you never know bye go go call your mom tell her you love her bye yeah don't kill people This podcast is produced in collaboration with Lost Line Media. Artwork by August Digital. Music by Matthew Cook.